Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. How do we know that God exists? How do you know that God exists? One of the ways that we know that God exists is the Bible says, look at creation. It says, look up at the stars, look up at the universe, and know that there's got to be a creator. In fact, the Bible says, only the fool looks up at creation and says, there is no God. And to quote Maria from the sound of music, right, nothing comes from nothing. So by definition, you know, how we define God, there's, there either is a God creator who's always been, or uh, matter has always been. And by definition, we'd have to say matter is God, right? If, as the, as the secularist and the atheist say, matter's always existed, then, then in some way, by definition, the matter, the rocks, the, the world as we know it, the universe as we know it, well, that's God. Uh, I, for one, uh, agree that only the fool has said in his heart that the rocks are God, right? I believe the Bible tells us just look up and you know that there is a God creator who made all of this because nothing comes from nothing except for God himself who's always been. But another reason I want to put forward to you this morning to believe in the existence of God is the universal urge within all of men to worship. Anthropologists have, have noted that we are, as people, as human beings, we are hardwired to worship. Every fiber in our being wants to worship someone. Worship is as natural for us as, as eating uh, and breathing is. So the question is asked, why is that so? Why would every, every people group deep in the Amazon jungle who has not been exposed at all to, to the rest of us, why would they worship? Why would they worship something? But yet every people group worships. And if evolution is your, is your worldview, evolution doesn't answer the question why independent people groups all over the world would worship. We would say the reason why every people group worships is because there is a God who has hardwired it in their nature to worship. And in fact, that's what we find in the Bible. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, listen to what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. So here's what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, the evidence of God is is in every one of us, but some, some, and I would say maybe most of the world, most of mankind, because Jesus would tell us, broad is the road that leads to destruction, most men are suppressing the truth of God that's that's in their heart. So let me expand for a few moments uh, this whole idea of worship, because this is the subject that Jesus talks about in our text before us. And this is one of the, the, uh, the things that John considers worthy to bring into his, into his book. And so Jesus is going to talk about worship. John's going to bring it in. So let's expand a little bit on our understanding of worship. When we say worship, we often refer to this little service, this gathering that we're having this morning. I want you to know that this is, this in and of itself, this gathering is not worship. Okay, We think worship is the praise we sing or the preaching that we assimilate or the praying, the prayers that we offer to God. All of those, I believe, are, if you would, expressions of worship, but they're not really what's at the heart of worship. 
Harold Best, in his book, Music Through the Eyes of Faith, tries to define worship, and he does so this way. Worship is acknowledging that someone or something else greater, worth more, and by consequence to be obeyed, feared, and adored. Worship is the sign that in giving myself completely to someone or something, I want to be mastered by it. That's kind of a little complicated, a little bit convoluted, but so let me kind of see if I can't simplify that and say worship then is surrendering my life, it's the surrender of my will to something or to someone else. So if you are surrendering your life, your power, your will, if you are surrendering it to your possessions, and I would say you are worshiping your possessions. If you are surrendering it to your pleasure, then, then, then hedonism, is, hedonism is your God. Pleasure is your God. If you're surrendering it to power, then I would say that you are worshiping power. Now this morning I want to assume that all of us want to worship God. And that we want to surrender our life to him and our will to him. And so with that understanding, let me see if I can't, you know, give us a more practical definition of worship for those of us that want to worship God. And I would say worshiping God would be us desiring to bring pleasure to God from our heart above everything else. That when it comes to worshiping God, what we want in our lives is to, to give God the greatest pleasure from our lives that we can. Uh, it was Rick Warren who said, the smile of God is the goal of your life. And, and I think this really kind of captures what the Lord Jesus himself told us. You remember this when he's asked what the greatest commandment is? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. It's really to give yourself and your whole being to God. I... Uh, I read this illustration of the story uh, that illustrates this. This father wanted to give his son a birthday present. He said, son, what do you want? And the son was usually very, very specific in what he wanted. In other words, I want a baseball goal. It's at Toys R Us. Baseball glove, excuse me. It's at Toys R Us, aisle six, you know, halfway down. But uh, yeah, no, Toys R Us is not here anymore. This is no illustration. So anyway, um, but this time he didn't say that. He said, dad, I don't know. I want a ball. I want a ball. And his dad said, well, well, what kind of ball? And he saw it for a moment. He said, um, I don't know, a football or a soccer ball? And the dad says, well, which do you want? And the boy said, well, dad, if you can throw it with me some this year, I want a football. He said, but if you, if you don't have time for that, I'd rather have a soccer ball so that I could go play uh, with my friends. And when the dad told his wife this later on, they both agreed that what the son really wanted wasn't so much the gift. It wasn't so much the football. He wanted time with the giver, right? Now, if I could, if you'd take that illustration, and if you would, worship is being interested in the giver, Worship is that which we put the most value on. And so in worship, when we're talking about worshiping God, we're saying, I want to be interested in you, Lord. I want you to be first in, in my life. So our text this morning is, is a story where Jesus is going to meet a, a woman, and he is pretty much going to end up focusing on worship. And as he does, I think there's some lessons in there for us. And so uh, we're going to work our way through the text, and then I'm going to make the lessons that I think come from the story. Chapter 4, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to begin reading. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of the Samaritans called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob 
Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was the sixth hour. So pressure is mounting for Jesus. You'll remember that Pressure was mounting against John, but now it's beginning to turn and, and to be against the Lord Jesus. We read in the text that Jesus is now baptizing more people than John. Micah talked about this last week when, when John said, that's the way it's supposed to be. He must increase. I must decrease. And, and we talked about that's what's happening. Jesus is increasing. The pressure is becoming greater on him. And so he decides he's leaving Judea and returning back to Galilee, where much of his ministry would take place. And it's says that he had to pass through the land of the Samaritans. Some people have made it a big deal that he had to pass through the land of the Samaritans, like as if there was some reason, i.e. this story is the reason, and that may be true. I think a, a better reading of the text would be he had to pass through it because that was the closest route to get to, uh, to Galilee, was to pass through through Samaria. You're probably wondering, well, what's the big deal about passing through Samaria? Probably most of you know this, but uh, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. In fact, the, the Jews considered the Samaritans to be the very lowest of all people. They didn't have any relationship with one another. The Samaritans were a half-breed of people when, when Assyria had come down years, years earlier and had exiled Israel out of the land. They took a bunch of Israelites out and they had replaced them with people from other nations. And the reason for that was very, very smart. The, the king of Assyria was trying to dilute nationalism. So in other words, we bring in all these nations together, they, they intermarry, they intermingle. Their children aren't going to have just one identity and so they'll be less likely to rebel. And so this, this half-breed of people between the Jews who had remained and the ones that had been brought in, the, the Gentiles who had been brought in were Samaritans, and they really didn't have anything to do with one another, and, and the Jews in particular, but I guess it was just as equal with the Samaritans, they really hated each other. It's the sixth hour. If we take this to be Jewish time, which I assume it is, it makes sense as far as all that's going to take place. It's noontime, and Jesus is sitting by a well. It's the hottest time of the day. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water from the well. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. We learned that the reason why Jesus is sitting by the well is the disciples have gone into town to get something for them to eat. And while he's sitting there by the well, this one lone woman comes out to get water from the well. And uh, he asks her for, uh, for a drink. Some have suggested that she was a woman of ill repute. I, you know, I've, I've done a lot of reading this week, and I want to suggest, I've even said that before. We don't know that for a fact. Even though she's been married five times, we, we don't know the motivations or any of those things. What, what may seem to imply she was a woman of ill repute, meaning that she didn't have a great reputation amongst the people of Sychar, was the fact that she came at noon by herself, the hottest day of the uh, hottest hour of the day. Why would you come at that time unless you're trying to avoid all the other women? And that may be the case. Jacob's well was a well that Jacob dug. It was very, very deep. Jesus could not draw anything from that well. And so he asked her for a drink of water. Verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? 
You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give you shall never thirst. But the water that I will give you will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. <clears throat> the woman is confused. She does not understand why Jesus is speaking to her. And her confusion may have been because she was a woman and he was a man, and that probably would not have happened. But that's really not her greatest confusion. Her greatest confusion, according to the text, was that he was Jewish and she was Samaritan. There was something about Jesus' garb, I am assuming, that, that led her to know that this man was a Jew. So her question really is, why are you as a Jew talking to me as a, a Samaritan? Because you know, nobody does that. Why are you doing that? And Jesus sort of ignores her question. He said, if you only knew who it was, I'd give you living water. Now, just, just so you know, living water in this, in this context could have meant running water. Running water, was always, running water was always better than well water. It was considered to be purer and cleaner. And, and, and so Jesus could have been offering her a water that's from a stream, if you would. It's living water. And uh, so... She says, you don't have anything to get any water. There's no river here. You know, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? He gave us this well. Maybe the implication is, you know, I, I think there's a lot of incredulity in her words. She doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. She's still thinking water. Jesus is not talking literal water. He says, you drink of my water, you'll never thirst again. Okay, and maybe she's humoring him when she says, give me some of that water so I won't have to come to this well again. I don't know that she actually believed that. It almost seems like she's humoring this guy who's making ridiculous statements, right, about not having to drink anymore. She's thinking literal physical water, water that quenches the physical thirst. Jesus is not thinking that or talking about that at all. Jesus is speaking about water to quench the thirst of our soul, the thirst of our hearts. He's, he's talking about that kind of water that, that quenches the, the thirst of our being. And remember this, remember what we've already established, and, and I hope you believe it, but it's true. God has put within us the knowledge of God. So all of us are thirsty for God. We may not know it, we may not know that's what we're thirsty for, but all of us are thirsty for God. And Jesus is basically not talking about physical thirst as much as he is talking about the thirst of the heart or the thirst of the soul. So for instance, Psalm 42, the psalmist speaks of his soul thirsting for God. The immaterial part of him, his, his heart, his, you know, his, his innermost being. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. If you go to Isaiah 55, he's really talking about spiritual thirst there. Isaiah 12, 3, I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Now listen, therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. See, there's a water that quenches our, our 
heart thirsts. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Here, here's what Jesus said through Jeremiah. You have exchanged me, the source of living water, for water that you store in a, in a tank that becomes putrid over time. And in fact, your tank can't even hold water. You see, if you come to me, I will give you water and you'll never be thirsty again. He's not talking literal water. Verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. I don't know if she was making fun of Jesus or whether she was really being serious. Give me some water so I don't have to drink anymore. She really hadn't you know, changed gears and known that he wasn't talking about literal water. I don't know. But Jesus kind of, at this point, doesn't really reply to her. He kind of goes back with the, with the question, bring your husband here, or a statement, bring your husband. And of course, what, what she, he goes on to say to her when she says, I don't have a husband, is, is going to God's stuff. The only way that God, the only way Jesus could have known what he knew was for God to reveal it to him, and she does understand that. By the way, let me talk theology. I mention this quite often. You know, I don't think that Jesus did what he did there because he was innately omniscient. I think that Jesus did what he did there because the Holy Spirit revealed to him what it was that he needed to know. And so he knew clearly. And by the way, somebody pointed out to me, and I think it's true in John 3.34, that it says that Jesus, I believe, was given the Spirit without measure. So what does that mean? I, you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was given to the Lord Jesus without measure. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> yeah, really? Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. This time she gets it right. She knows he's not talking about literal water. She understands that he's, he, this, this is not a physical, literal conversation about water. This is, this is a God kind of question because you are a God man. And the reason she knows that he's a God man is because of what he just got through saying. Now maybe her question is legitimate. Maybe her question is, okay, I, um, I, I want to know this because you're a God man. I've always wanted to know where do we worship? Right? Where do we worship? And, uh, and is it here or is it in Jerusalem? Maybe this is a diversionary tactic. I think I've actually said before this is a diversionary tactic. But, you know, I'm trying to learn to, to read Scripture in a, in a, in a different light. And, and one of the things I realize is I don't know if this is a diversionary tactic or whether this was, you know, a legitimate question. It doesn't really matter. She basically asked this question. Isn't it funny that, that so often throughout history we've, we've always argued about worship? Even amongst us who followed Jesus, you remember back in the 80s, we called them the, anybody remember? Back in the 80s, what was happening in the church? We called it the worship wars. Anybody remember those days? That's what we evangelicals called the 80s, the years of worship wars, because we were, we were warring over how to do worship, whether we use just the old hymns or whether we knew new songs. And all. We've always fought over worship. Why do you think that is? I think it's because of the importance of the subject of worship. I think that's why, you know, I think that's why she's asking this question, actually. And, and I think that's why Jesus is going to tackle this most important subject. And let me, let me, let me say this as I begin to read the last verses that we're going to look at this morning, 21 to 26. I think in this exchange, we find, we find some really important truths about worship. 
And so I want you to note them as we go through them, okay? So here we go, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. She quotes the Greek there, or maybe that's just John. When, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, and, and I, I like to think about this moment. I mean, here they are, eyeball to eyeball. And Jesus looks at her and he says, the one who's speaking to you is he. Well, that was a moment, wasn't it? Jesus begins to tell her, he says, the time is coming. And actually, the time would be in just less than three years. The time is coming where it doesn't matter where you worship. It will not matter what place we worship in. He then goes on to, to tell us, though, that the, that the Samaritans worship what they don't know. In other words, they are not worshiping in truth. They are not worshiping correctly. He is telling them, in your mountain you should not worship because it's not right. He goes on to say, because we, we Jews, we worship in truth because worship is from us. Or God, what does he say? Let me read it back exactly. He says, you worship what you do not, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. In what way is salvation from the Jews? Salvation is from the Jews because it was through Abraham's seed, Jesus, that salvation would come to all of us. Jesus was born the son of Abraham. And Jesus, in Jesus, we find our salvation. He's saying that right now, the first covenant is still in effect. You worship on the mountain called, called Jerusalem. You worship in Jerusalem where the holy temple is because the way you worship now is through, through sacrifices, through, through animals who are bearing your sin. But a day is coming when all of that is going to become obsolete. In fact, the day would be three years from then when Jesus would die and rise again. Hebrews 8 tells us that all of that would become obsolete and God would initiate a new covenant through the Lord Jesus. At this point, the, the Samaritans are worshiping what they don't know. And by the way, much of the world is doing that. And, and people say to us, do you know what they say to us? How do you have the right to say that my worship is wrong? Correct? Isn't that what people say all the time? You know, it's not, it's not that you worship correctly, it's that you worship at all. That's what matters. That's not what matters. And Jesus is saying, you've got it wrong. Worship is from the Jews because salvation is from the Jews. But he's also saying that in just a short amount of time, it's not going to matter where we worship. Because you see, all of that is about to change with, he doesn't say this, but with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All right, so that brings us to, my, to, the, to the part that I want to focus on here at the end. And, and with this, after this, we'll be finished. But, so it seems to me that Jesus in these verses tells us some things about worship that are really important for you and me to understand, really important for us to grab hold of. And so I'd like to take a few moments and share with you four things that, uh, that I think Jesus wants us to see from this exchange with this woman. Here's the first one, okay? God is looking for, God is seeking people who choose to worship him. God is seeking, God wants, God longs for men and women to choose to worship him. And I get that from verse 23, when Jesus says, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
The implication of that verse seems to me anyway to be that God would God is longing for folks to worship him and he's seeking for those who choose to worship him. Now, not everyone would agree with my assessment of that verse and in fact some would some would would argue with me that for God to look for people if if God is waiting on us or God is looking for people who choose to worship him that that's somehow going to take away from from his his persona, his, his sovereignty, his lordship. And, and so I want to speak to that real quickly with three thoughts. Number one is this. The fact that I believe God is looking for men and women who choose to worship him. In no way does that somehow, in, in no way does God need that. Let me rephrase that. In no way does God need that. God does not need us to worship. Here's theology for you. God has always been absolutely independent from anything that he's created. In other words, God we don't exist because God needed us. We exist because God wanted us. We exist because God wanted to create us. And, and just like we, we need worship, like we need air and, and we need water to live spiritually, we need those things to live physically, just like we need to worship to live, God doesn't need us in any way. So when I say to you this morning that I believe that, that worship, in worship, God is looking for men who make the choice, women who make the decision to worship him, I am not in all ways saying God needs them in the sense that he inherently needs them. Does that make sense? He, he does not need it to complete himself. I mean, this has been so exciting to me to learn. It was a number of years ago. But God has always been community. You know what I mean by that when I say God's always been community? God is eternal. He's always existed. He's never He's never not been. Where everything else is created, God is the uncreated one. And you know, in his... In his eternal existence, he's always existed in community. He's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how he tells us to call him. But he's always been three in community in one. You know, one of the reasons, and here's, this is so exciting. If you've, never, if you've never grasped this, God is inviting you to be a part of his community. He's invited you to be part of his, of his family. And he wants to adopt you into his family. And so there's this relationship thing. Can, can I just say this? This is why community is so important for us as believers. It, I mean, listen, if God himself and his co-eternal existence has always existed in community, surely he would have written community into his desire for us and into how he's created us. And indeed, isn't that true? What did he say about man at the very beginning? It is not good for man to be alone, right? Now, granted, he made us marriage. He made us the relationship of marriage. But it's more than that. God made us all, gave us all kinds of relationships to live in. Community is important. Number two, I want you to understand when I say that God is seeking worshipers, I, I don't believe that God giving men an autonomous free choice to somehow choose to worship him is somehow detracting from his power, his person, or his prestige. In other words, when God chooses to give us freedom to respond in worship to him, a true freedom where we could respond one way or another, when God does that, he does not diminish himself in any way by doing so. I may have used this illustration before, but um, when my children were little, Anne made them eat vegetables. Anne made them eat, come on. 
She made them eat vegetables, and, and I tried to support that. And so, so here's Shep, right? And he doesn't want any green beans. And so we would make him sit at the table for an hour or two sometimes. It was a long time. And then sometimes we'd get angry, and we'd say, you eat that one. You eat, and we'd negotiate. You know, you eat one green bean, and you can get up. But, Dad, if I eat a green bean, I'm going to throw up. And you're not going to throw up. He ate one green bean, and he threw up. And I don't mean he spit up. I mean he threw up, right? So, uh, but you know, when Shep was little, when Shep was little, I could have overpowered my son. I could have sat on him. I could have pulled his mouth open. I could have taken my finger and I could have shoved a green bean down his throat. And then I could have, I could have shut his mouth and I could have made him eat those green beans one at a time because I had the power to do that. Can I tell you all that by not doing that, and I did not do that, but can, can, can I tell you all, by not doing that and, and ultimately leaving that autonomous choice to my son, even though I wanted that choice to be different, didn't diminish my power or my ability over my son at that point. And in the same way, God giving us some sort of freedom to respond to his gracious initiative does not diminish him in any way. And the third thing that I want you to notice is this, about this whole thought, is that it must be important to God. Think about this for a moment. It must be important to God if he says, I am seeking men and women who will choose to worship. When he says that, it must mean that this choice for us to worship, lying with us, must be super important to God. In other words, if God's going to do this, it must somehow really matter to Him. Let me say again, the issue is not that God could not make men and women who are absolutely incapable of doing anything but worshiping Him. He could have. He could have made people who had no absolute ability to rebel from him to start with. He could have done that. But, um, you know, he, he didn't. He chose to make us his creatures in his image and giving us some degree of autonomy to respond to, to his gracious, gracious initiative. I want to read something from Zavi, Ravi Zacharias here real quickly on the supreme ethic of love. And so I'd like you to listen because this is what I'm trying to say. The supreme ethic that God has given us is the ethic of love. It is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment. This thing we call love, which places value upon the other person of worth and is something to be protected. You can never have love without intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you are compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to express the sentiment and the reality of love. If love is the supreme ethic and freedom is indispensable to love, and God's supreme goal for you and for me is that we will love him with all our heart and love our neighbors ourselves, for him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. I believe that's the whole point that Jesus is trying to make in this little episode with this woman, when he says, God is seeking, it doesn't matter whether you're Samaritan, doesn't matter whether you are Jewish, doesn't matter whether you're Gentile, God is seeking worshipers. Now let's go on, because there's some other things he says about worship. He says, God is seeking worshipers, but there's something about those worshipers that we must note. And here's the, here's the second thing from the, from the story, from the text. It's that God is seeking worshipers who worship, I believe, from their inner man. They worship from their heart. 
They worship from their spirit, their soul. You know, whichever term we want to use there. They, they worship from inside. And the reason I say that is because in the text, you know, the Lord Jesus tells her, God is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And so when it talks about spirit there, you know, I'm going to suggest that he's talking about your inner man. Now, I know there's, there's, there's controversy about whether spirit and soul, one and the same, are they different, etc. I, I simply believe that he's talking about worshiping from, from your inner being, not just in your mechanical rote activities on the outside, but from your heart. This is why the Lord Jesus said that, that we should love the Lord God with all our soul, with all our heart, with all our might, basically with all our being, because it's got to come from within. It's not just, it's not just that I worship in my mechanisms, it's I worship from my heart. So in the Old Testament, God tells Samuel, when he goes to pick David, you remember this, he said, David, don't look on the outside because God doesn't look on the outside. Where does God look? On the heart, right? That's what he says, on the inside, on the heart. Our worship must come from the heart because, listen, that is the place that God is looking. So when it comes to worshiping God, in other words, seeking to give God the, the, the allegiance of my life and in, in in my will and my heart and my being, when it comes to that, it's got to come from within my heart, not just some kind of external thing that I do. And, and that applies to when we're gathering like this in a meeting for, for the purpose of worship. It's not just that we sing the right thing, it's that we must sing from the heart and mean it. You know... Uh, it's got to be authentic. It's not that we just, it's not that we pray. It's not that you come to listen to the, to the word of God. It, it is that from your heart, you desire to obey the word of God. It, it's always a heart issue. Worship that is insincere, that doesn't come from your inner person. I mean, if it's not there, it's pointless and it's, and it's worth nothing. We have to worship God with our, with our heart, with our soul. That's what Jesus tells us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, Jesus is teaching us to pray. He says, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Here's what Jesus is telling us about our praying. Our praying that's just meaningless rote repetition. It's, it doesn't mean anything to God. Why? Because it's not coming from a heart. It's just me going through the mechanism of praying. Some people think if they just keep praying the same prayer over and over again, that somehow it means something to God. He says, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. It's got to come from your heart. That's what God is looking for. It's not optional. It, it's, not, it's indispensable that you, you worship God, that you, your relationship with God not be from, the, from an external position, but from an internal coming to the outside, not the other way around. A.W. Tozer said this. Listen, this is so good. A.W. Tozer said, Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love at the presence of the most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father who art in heaven. Man, that is so good, isn't it? A.W. Tozer says, hey, it is, it, is, it is from our heart that expresses itself outwardly. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that the outward things that we do in worship are not important. I'm saying that if they're not coming from your heart, 
If you're here this morning supposedly to worship the Creator, but your mind and your heart is somewhere else, and you're not desiring to somehow exalt Him and glorify Him in your life, then you're wasting your time. Because, because God looks on your heart. I can't look on your heart. And you can't look on one another's hearts. You can look on your own heart. And God looks on your heart. Number three. Worship must not just be authentic in the sense that it comes from my, my heart, my inner man, my spirit. But worship that God is, is look, the worshipers that God is seeking to find are going to be men and women who worship him anchored in truth. In other words, sincerity is not enough. Sincerity alone is not what God is looking for. Sometimes we think we think that we want to. Uh, oh, think we we think that we. Want, uh, sorry, I just saw what time it was. Um, sorry, Chuck, I just have to. Wor- worshiping worship that God values. Let me get my thoughts again. Worship that God values has to be anchored in truth. Everyone. In other words, it's not enough just to be sincere. And I know many folks in our world want to say sincerity is enough, but sincerity is not. Enough. We must worship the Lord in truth because God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. There, there is a narrowness about truth. And in, in, in the Ten Commandments, even under the, Ju- Ju- uh, the Jewish Old Testament covenant, it says, you are not to have or worship any other gods but me. There is a narrowness about it. Pluralism is not right. If you don't know what pluralism is, it says it doesn't matter who you worship, Buddha, Allah, all the Islams out there, uh, whatever. As long as you're sincere in your worship, that's all that matters. That's pluralism. Folks, that's not true. Truth matters. If you come home today and you say to your wife, or or you say to your husband, hey, I want to paint the bedroom. What color would you like it? Because I want to give it to you as a gift. And you say, cream, that's my favorite. And they say, okay. And they say, you go on out. I'm, this is a gift for you. And you come home, and it's not cream, but it's a dark purple. I mean, you are going to just like, whoa, what was that about, right? And your spouse says, I know you said cream, but I just knew you'd love purple just as much. So I painted it purple. I mean, you get the point, right? God, God has revealed himself. It's not like we don't know, so whatever, whatever goes is good, right? It's not like that at all. We know God has revealed himself. He's told us what is true. We must worship in truth. Man, my time is gone, but listen to me. Here's, here's truth. There's one creator God who's always existed. He's perfect. He's sinless. He created you because he loves you. But all of us in this room are sinners. All of us have rebelled against him. And because of that, the wages of our sin is death. And we all will die. And we need a savior. We can try to wake our, make our way back to God by, by doing things and etc. Somehow, somehow trying to overcome our death by doing good. And, and Jesus says, or God says, listen, as long as you're trying to somehow make yourself good, you're going to fall short. There's only one way that I accept you. There's only one way I'm willing to deal with your sin. And that is when by faith you trust me. Rather than trying to earn me, you trust me. And if you trust me, if you trust me, then I'll forgive you. And and you will rise in the resurrection to live forever and ever and ever. Never to die again. And that's the promise. That's the truth. And we must come in faith to him. That's the truth. That's the truth. And my last point, worshiping God is a choice you must make. And you might say, this sounds a lot like your first point, and maybe it is, but if my emphasis in the first point was on God seeking such people, my emphasis on this point is that you must choose to worship. I mean, you've got to become, you've got to desire God. You've got to desire to worship God. Here, let's be honest. Most people don't desire to worship God. Most people don't desire God in their life. You know why? Because they don't want another God in their life. 
They don't want somebody over them. They don't want somebody who, to whom they surrender their lives and their will. They don't want that. I mean, at times I don't want that. Let's be honest. Are there any times when your will clashes God's will and you want your will, not his will? I mean, I've run into that my entire following Jesus' life is that my will conflicts with his will often. But I have, I have chosen to worship him. I'm telling you, you've got to make a decision that you're going to choose to worship God. You've got to make a decision that you yourself, you are going to follow the Lord. I love this. You know, she says, man, and, and I think there's almost a defeat in what she's saying to Jesus. I know that there's coming a day when Messiah is going to come. He's going to help me understand all this. I, I don't think that's a put off. I think that's a resigning that there's so much I don't know. But that's my, that's my take on her thought, right? And Jesus in the quietness of that moment by the well, just her and him, he says, the one you're talking to, that's him. I'm him. I'm him. Jesus told a story. And in the story he said, he said, there's two men. Let me tell you what they're like. One of them builds a house on a rock. And when the storm comes, his house stays. And another one builds his house. He doesn't build on a rock, but he builds on the sand. And when the storm comes, his house gets washed away. And then he interprets his story. And he says, you know, the one who builds on the rock, that's like a man who hears my words. He does my word. The guy who builds on the sand is like a guy who hears my words, but doesn't, doesn't respond to my words. And the storm in this case, the storm is God's judgment. The storm is God's judgment. When God's judgment comes, the one who's built his house on the word of God will stand. The one who's built his house on anything else, it'll just get washed away in the judgment. And this is my point, if, if I'm not making it, and I feel, the, I feel the weight of the time, and I know you all say, forget, don't worry about the time, but I can, sorry. I feel the weight of the time, but I want you to understand, you can know about God, because he's put something in your heart, but you have to make a decision you have to make a decision to choose to worship. And I personally believe the choice is in your hands. It's not enough to come to a worship service. It's not enough to do all the outward external things. This is something from your heart. So here's my concluding question to you this morning. Who do you worship? I mean, nobody's, hey, listen, nobody can listen into the conversation between you and God. But this is the conversation I want you to have right now. Who and what do you worship? What has, what has captured your inner being? So it is what is driving you. It, it, is what, it, it is at the center of your life. It's what you give yourself to. It's what you've surrendered yourself to. That is what you worship. And so what I'd like you to do is just be transparent. Be transparent with yourself. And, and I've already said this. But let me say it again. The biggest rival with God it's not money, possessions, or any of those other things. The biggest rival for God is you. The biggest rival for who's going to be God in your life is you, because you might want some of those other things, and, and you, know, you want them, so you are the rival to God. So I'd like you to just bow your heads with me and take a moment to just talk with God and say, God, what am I worshiping this morning? What, what is of supreme value to me? What, what, is, what captures my heart? I'm not asking you whether you come to church. I'm not asking whether you believe in Jesus. I'm asking you, what do you worship? What is of most value to you this morning? And examine your heart. 
Just keep your eyes closed if you would and your heads bowed. But I got one more thought just occurred to me. I'd like you to picture in your heart your, your life and there's a throne on it. And, and basically you came into the world and at some point you plopped yourself down on the throne of, of your own heart. And so the, the, the rival battle, if you would, that is Jesus, God. God wants the throne of your heart. And, and I'm asking you this morning if you're willing to, um, to surrender the throne of your heart to the Lord Jesus, to let him be king now by choice. I tell you, I, I think every day we have to fight with one to get back up on the throne. But, but will, will you, have you, you know, being honest with yourself, is Jesus seated on the throne of your heart this morning. And if he's not, I'd like to invite you, I'd like to ask you to consider stepping off the throne of your heart and saying, Jesus, to the best of my ability, I want to give you that throne. I want to give you, I want to give you worship. I want you to be that which I value most, that which I put first. With your heart still bowed before the Lord, is there anyone this morning that would say, Jimmy, I want, I want you to know, man, I'm... I'm I'm putting Jesus on the throne of my heart for the first time. I want him to take the throne of my life. Is there anybody here this morning? Raise your hand. Let me know so that you and I can get together later. Anybody? All right, let me ask a second question. And Is there anybody here this morning that recognizes, wow, Jesus, you know, I, I've let other things run and rule my life, but I want to put you back on the throne of my heart? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm just going to ask you to respond to God. Let him, let him be on the throne of your heart. God, thank you for, Jesus, thank you for coming from heaven so that we might know the true and living God in a way that we, we, we could not have known unless you became one of us. Thank you for being willing to humble yourself, even humiliate yourself, if you would, by lowering yourself to be like us so that, uh, so that we could know you intimately. Lord, this morning, I know I speak for my brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters, and we want to say to you, we want you to sit on the throne of our hearts. Lord, not, not just momentarily, not just on Sunday morning or this other time. We, we want you to sit on the throne of our heart daily from the moment we wake up to the moment we sleep. And even in our sleep, we want you to rule over our lives. And so oh, I pray that, God, you'd help us to do that daily. Submit ourselves to you. Surrender ourselves to you. Help us, Lord. May today be a fresh, a fresh turning in our lives, Lord, of, of surrendering ourselves to you. Thank you for the grace that you enable us to do that with. Thank you for taking the initiative. Thank you for reaching out with your spirit and with your word. Thank you for all you do in introducing yourself to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.